I'm Marcus Smith, and this is the Constant Wonder Podcast. We feature encounters with natural wonder and amazing people who are themselves natural wonders, and with art and history, stories of discovery and adventure. And the reason is simply because being in awe is among the most significant experiences we ever have. A lot of wonder is about to converge in this next story. An ordinary farmhand makes a career decision that will turn him into someone extraordinary. It's the year 1901. Joseph Mikulik walks away from his home in Central Europe, eventually to become a pedestrian. At first, he's just an emigrant to the Western Hemisphere, South America specifically, but by 1906, his aim has become to circumambulate the world. This is an ambition that ultimately will put him in a league apart, even from contemporaries who were also distance walkers. It was an era when going far on foot was often a ticket to fame. So off he goes, traversing the globe under his own locomotion. Joseph McCulloch knocks on the doors of rich and poor alike, visits with anyone and everyone, and here's the clincher. Day by day, for nearly three decades, he puts together a physical record, a massive book, as proof of all the places he's been and people he's met, and he carries the book with him. It can be picked up with bare hands. It's 60 pounds, but it's a deceptively large 60 pounds. And it's not only that you're looking at something that's 2,000 pages and, and each page is multiples of what a normal page would be. You know, I would say 75 to 80% of your audience wouldn't be able to, to lift, both because of its size and because of its weight. That's Nathan Rabb, who's going to help us tell this story. But for right now, come back with me to the year that Joseph Mikulik first left his native land, Croatia. 1901. The automobile is still in its infancy. The Wright brothers are still two years away from their first flight. Mikulik ventures out into a world that's more and more torn apart by warfare. He's going to travel for not just a season or two, but as I said, for nearly three decades. He'll meander his way through the tumultuous first third of the 20th century, all the while putting together a gigantic record, this book. He compiles it along the way. It's going to pass through the hands of 60,000 of his fellow humans. It's an artifact that has no parallel, and it's recently turned up. What's inside? Well, it's chock full. Mikulik seems to have been obsessed with the idea of gathering as much tangible evidence of the wide world around him as he could possibly tote around. At his invitation, world leaders and luminaries would inscribe their autographs, well wishes, maybe the occasional doodle. The book contains news clips and postage stamps, official seals. But those who contributed were not just from the ranks of officialdom, not just the high and the mighty. Commoners are represented there, too. And by the time Joseph Mikulik seems to have had his fill of walking around the world, just about the same time the Great Depression was beginning, he had put together one of this world's most curious artifacts and a personal legacy. And having done all that, then he puts it up for sale. How he was ever able to take leave of it, I will never understand. It had to be a hard decision. How could it have been otherwise? This was not just an object to him. It had been his ever-present companion for thousands upon thousands of miles. But he did sell it. At what price? What would make it worth it? What would it fetch? I kind of think the line between eccentricity and genius can be thin. Mikulik walked that line, and I mean literally, he walked that line, and he walked and walked and walked thousands of miles across six continents. And from all appearances, wherever he went, he talked and listened and talked some more to lots of people who talked with him, and he became a sensation, and people wanted in on the action, maybe even liked him. And the book, I think, had to be more than just icing on the cake, and it wasn't just window dressing or a gimmick. It was really a way that he had of connecting with the world and finding a place for himself. And he wanted it to be a larger place than he had been allotted by life. And he seems to have pulled that off. 
That's our producer, Eric Schultzka, speaking. Both he and I have taken quite a liking to this eccentric, peripatetic Croatian. Here's the impression Mikulik made, as described once in an Indiana newspaper. Richmond, Indiana. The Richmond Palladium, May 24th, 1908. Mikulik, clad in heavy walking trousers, encased in stout canvas leggings, a blue jersey with yellow stripes about the sleeves, and carrying on his back a bag which contained his few worldly possessions, attracted considerable attention as he strode down Main Street yesterday afternoon. He was assisted in his progress by a heavy walking stick. He went at once to the city building where he obtained permission to sell postcards bearing a likeness of himself. He supports himself from the proceeds derived from the sale of these cards. When I started out on my long walk, I weighed 175 pounds. Today, I weigh 133 pounds and have not an ounce of fat on me. I wore out 15 pairs of shoes, but I am not a bit tired and am enjoying excellent health, stated the young man who is just 30 years of age after he had secured the signature of the postmaster to a book which he carries. That's one of the early mentions of his book. Autograph books were not all that uncommon back then, but his puts all the rest to shame. Well, he seems like the kind of person that people liked. He seems to have shown up on the doorsteps of these rich and, and famous people, in addition to the not-so-rich and famous, and they welcomed him. I mean, who amongst us could knock on the doors of five different presidents, two kings of England, multiple heads of state, nearly every head of state of, of any major country at that time, and get an audience? There's definitely something a little otherworldly about him, something a little bit different, in, in a charming way. He met more people in a year than most of us will meet in a lifetime. And not only did he meet them, he has proof that he met them. He was an eccentric figure. That's Nathan Rabb again. He's a rare book dealer in the Philadelphia area. Not long ago, Nathan Rabb got a call, somebody wanting him to look over an item. This happens a lot to rare book dealers. But few eyes, if any, had perused this volume for over a century. It had dropped clean out of sight. And Rab himself was soon obsessed with the book, with Mikulik, his eccentricity. But Nate was hardly the first person to have raised an eyebrow. From the newspapers, he was described as a teetotaler, a vegetarian. He played the bugle. Uh, <laughs> he sounds like a very uh, somebody who, who would have shown up in these small towns and really stuck out right away. That one quote, I actually have it here. It's from a Pittsburgh newspaper, and it says, He's attired in a sweater of purple and bright yellow and wearing heavy brown leggings. The pedestrian attracted considerable attention when he arrived in town. And in later stories, they talk about how he's wearing all these medals. I think when he would meet with certain dignitaries, they would give him a little pin or a little medal, a sort of a thank you. And he would he would pin them to himself such that if you see a photo of him from this time period, he's got like 20 or 30, like, pieces of flair on his, on his body. <laughs> he would sling his bag across his shoulder and he, he, look, he looked like an alpine hiker with his like bag and his medals. And his, that's how he would show up in small town America. You can just imagine everybody just like a sort of record scratch and everybody just going like, what? Who is this? Like Nathan Rabb, Rebecca Rigo Berry is an expert on rare books. She's author of Rare Books Uncovered, True Stories of Fantastic Finds in Unlikely Places. She's also editor of the journal Fine Books and Collections. This book blew her away. Recently, her article about Joseph McCulloch and his book appeared in Smithsonian Magazine. Just imagining the hands that have been on this book, and that's kind of a thing in Book collecting, everyone talks about you want to buy a first edition signed by an author because you know that that author's hands have been on that book. And there's a, maybe some kind of transference that occurs when you've touched something that's touched somebody else, that a kind of idea that there's some spirit that goes with it or, or, or something. But this book, gosh, 60,000 hands. Like, <laughs> it's just astounding. And also the fact that it was, you know, this one man's sort of life work. I mean, there's a couple of really great photos of Mikulik in the late 1920s where he's holding the book. He's kind of, he's got it on his shoulder. He would carry it around on his shoulder. 
you know, it kind of looks dirty. It looks like it's been through hell and back. <laughs> and it's really incredible to think about, you know, having it on a, on a steamer boat or having it, I don't know how many continents the book had been on. He had been to six different continents in his travels. I don't know if the book made it to all of those. The book has definitely had a life of its own. You don't see books like this often, even when this is what you do for a living. I've been writing about rare books and manuscripts for about 15 years now. I have never seen anything like this. The person who brought Mikulik's book to light wants to remain anonymous. But we do know that this person had inherited it from a great uncle, and we know the name of that great uncle, a businessman named Samuel Robinson. 1924 was the year that Robinson purchased the book directly from Mikulik for $2,500. And that's about $42,000 today. If you want to measure that in sweat, time, and miles, that's not much of a payoff, not at all. Far short of what Mikulik was probably hoping for. I'm still hearing that figure of a million dollars ringing in my ears. $2,500, that's better than nothing, you might say. And just like the book, McCulloch also had disappeared from public memory for almost a century, even after many years in the limelight. And then the year 2019, Nathan Rabb receives that phone call, an offer to be shown the book that few people had ever seen, and frankly, that few people would ever want to lift, let alone carry. The seller told me that there was this man, he traveled a lot of places, there are a lot of names, some of them he could read, some he couldn't. It needs to be seen seen in person. Oftentimes people tell me that, and that's not true. In this case, it most certainly was. I don't know there's any description he could have given me, even if he had a list of all the names in it, it wouldn't have prepared me for what, what was there. When you first see a book like that without having a clear indication of what's inside it, I, I see nothing but potential. Every page is going to have something new and exciting on it, something new and undiscovered that no one had seen in you know a century, which in this case was certainly true. Going through a book like that is not something that one does immediately. It takes months to, to flip through it. But you can open it immediately and get the scope, understand the scope of his journey, which is what we did sat down and, and chatted over the course of an hour. I flipped through it looking to see what stuck out to me, what seemed more interesting. This person had sort of undersold the thing on the phone. The man who had traveled all these places, the scope of his journey, the scope of the piece of history became so much clearer on examination. Well, did he even say, you know, you're going to find the signature of Andrew Carnegie, Thomas Edison, Leopold Stokowski? Yeah, he listed a few names. Uh, my recollection is he he listed Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, a couple of the presidents. But he really was rather vague, and it was quite insistent that it be seen in person. And it was fortunate, although we're a national, international business, it was fortunate and coincidental that the seller lived around the corner from us. It seems improbable that Joseph McCulloch started out with a massive, empty book. More probable is that little by little he was adding not just people's signatures, but those individual little bundles of blank pages sewn together eventually to make a book. They're called, coincidentally, book signatures, or SIGs. And as the book swelled up, he eventually had to resort to pushing it around in a cart. It can be picked up with bare hands. Can be. It's 60 pounds, but it's a deceptively large 60 pounds. And, and that's simply because you're, you're compounding 60 pounds with the dimensions of the book, which are large. And it's not only that you're looking at something that's 2,000 pages and, and each page is multiples of what a normal page would be. It comes off as kind of a, a cartoonishly large book, which, you know, I would say 75 to 80 percent of your audience wouldn't be able to, to lift, both because of its size and because of its weight. Delving between the book covers, Nate Rabb started getting to know detail after detail about Mikulik. He paid some translators who identified various entries. And while not cataloging the whole of it, still, he's the guy who today probably knows this book best. But who knows Joseph Mikulik best? Who really has ever told his story? Those translators were able to open up a few windows on the matter. Turns out that Joseph Mikulik had grown up on the farm. His family was not wealthy, not educated. His father went into debt at some point. And by the way, we only know this because of the notations that he made in the book itself. It's not as if there's a formal story on this man. 
Nate was able to come up with a birthday, which is January 15th, 1878. And I think that Joseph actually wrote that somewhere in the big book. His father went into debt. He decided to set off on foot. And some local organization promised him money if he completed a certain number of thousand miles on foot and could prove it. And as a young man, he's probably in his early 20s, he set off to, to do just that, to see a large portion of the world. I mean, it's not just an autograph album in this sense. You know, he's got lots of parts where it's like a narrative about his life and where he's been. I mean, these are the parts that Nate had translated so that he could get a better sense of just what the heck this giant book really was. At some point in his journeys, he saw somebody in Italy carrying an autograph book and decided that's what he wanted to do. But rather than go the conventional route, which is to use an autograph book the size that you and I might envision in our head, he used these booklets, which he later bound into this huge book, three feet tall, two and a half feet tall by a foot and a half wide. I mean, it's very much the size of a seven-year-old. It's not just signatures. It, it has a lot to do with his personal life and his, where he's traveled and cool things that he's seen. And then there are all these newspaper articles pasted in, many of which are not even in English. They're in just tons of different language newspapers. As far as what you would call his profession, he was a world traveler. The, the best description that I saw of him was globetrotter. And I think that the word globetrotter encapsulates not only the fact that he went all over the world, but that a lot of the, his journey was done on foot. To make money, he sold postcards with his signature on them. And you can still find them online today. I think you can probably find one for 50 to $75. And that's how he made money along the way. Eventually, of course, he sold this book and made some money then. But, but I found no evidence to indicate that he had any kind of day job beyond traveling, nor can I imagine he had the time. You know, he would be gone for seasons on end over the course of years. He engaged in a succession of trips across the world, everywhere. He met all sorts of people. When I pitched Smithsonian about writing this article, the editor said, I, I just don't know that you're going to have enough information, you know, to, to write about this guy because, you know, he's not known. If you Google him, you're not going to come up with much. There's no archive. There's no scholars that know anything about him. I was like, well, I downloaded 600 articles <laughs> from the yeah, historic newspaper database. And I think I, I could literally write a book about him because you can trace him from place to place and you can trace his stories. And, you know, whether or not you're going to get to the bottom of some of those stories is a different question, but there's just so much. Now, if you go and you research him and you use a database like newspapers.com, which is what I used a lot. I mean, if you just type in his name, you'll get about 600 news articles. You can trace him as he literally walks from one city to the next. He got so much coverage and so much publicity wherever he went. I think he would literally go to the newspaper's office and say, here I am, who wants to interview me? What do you suppose his calling card was? Would he just show up and say, I'm a person who has walked more than anybody you've ever met before? Yeah. I think at the beginning, he was probably part of this. Th apparently, there was like this fad at the beginning of the 20th century called like hyper-pedestrianism. You know, people who would walk long distances. And I think when he first got here, you know, before he really got on the autograph thing, that was what he would use to get attention. And he would show up in a town and say, oh, I'm, I'm walking around the world and I'm going to do it in five years. And oh, by the way, somebody's paying me $10,000 to write my story if I can do it in five years. I don't want to call it a shtick, but he always had a story to tell. It kind of got more elaborate in some places. And sometimes they say he can speak four languages. Sometimes they say he can speak nine languages. Like, you don't know if he's the one telling the tall tales or if the reporter's aren't getting the right information or if there's some kind of something's lost in translation. I don't know. But it's like he always just knew what to say to get some attention. Like the time he showed up in the Buffalo, New York newspaper office with a woman he claimed to have met and married on his walk. And almost too conveniently, she too was a hyper-pedestrian, they said. Washington, D.C., the Washington Herald, June 24th, 1908. Austrian finds bride on trip as part of wager. Buffalo, New York. One year ago, last February, Joseph Mikulik, a newspaper man of Vienna, left his home in Austria on a wager. Its conditions were that he must walk 25,000 miles in five years, leave Austria penniless, must not beg on his way, and lastly, return with a wife. 
He came heel and toe into Buffalo today on what he says is the last lap of his journey, and walking by his side was the necessary wife. He only got her last week in Erie, Pennsylvania. She is a pretty Romanian girl who worked in a restaurant there and waited upon Mikulik. He told her of his undertaking and proposed. They walked together to Westfield, about 30 miles east of Erie, where they were married on Sunday. The girl claims to be the heel-and-toe champion of Romania, saying she did 900 miles there in one contest. Today, they started for Niagara Falls. They expect to go over into Canada and then cut back into the United States and sail from New York for Austria. I'm looking right now at an online photo of Joseph Mikulik. He's striking a dapper pose side-by-side with his wife, identified as Anna Stiopu, a poet of romantic Romania. This is one of those uh, publicity postcards to, uh, to make a little money. The caption says that while he has walked over 12,800 miles, Anna is not at all far behind him, with over 11,300 to her own credit. They're clad in cheery attire with hats and boots, and curiously, she is holding a bugle. The bugle convinces me of nothing. But what is convincing is the historical record. Official documents of their marriage near Chautauqua, New York, say that she is from Bucharest, her mother from France, and now it appears that these two hyper-pedestrians are embarking for a life on the road together. If ever anyone was qualified to become soulmates, these two might have been at first blush. You'll never walk alone, wrote Oscar Hammerstein with composer Richard Rogers. Except, never say never. Within three years of their marriage, Mikulik procures a passport for international travel. The application for the passport shows that he is single. Which of the two decided to walk away? We'll likely never know. One thing I'm certain of, each of them came into the marriage already knowing how to walk out the door. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Our guests today are Nathan Rabb, a rare book collector, and Rebecca Rigoberry, a writer who specializes in rare books. They share a passion for the story of Joseph Mikulik, a man who made and toted around for years on end one of the strangest books this world has ever seen. One thing I've wondered about is the strenuous nature of hyperpedestrianism, as it's called. Can you really go that far, that fast on foot for that long? Here's Rebecca's take. He told a reporter that he could walk 50 miles a day. Now, when I was writing the article and I was sort of Googling, like, you know, how many miles a day can an average human walk? There were uh, stats that sort of showed me that if you were the kind of person who walks every day, long distances, you could get up to 40 or 50 miles a day. The physical capacity of somebody to do this is, I understand that's, that's feasible, that's plausible. But what about the contest? Did he make that up? It's really hard to know if he made it up. Like I was saying before, in so many of these newspaper articles, it's hard to know if he's telling tales or they're not writing it down correctly or what the case might be because sometimes he's going to get $3,000 and sometimes he's going to get $10,000. And we never hear any more about it after it's ended. You know, he does actually walk the 25,000 miles and he gets around the world and he gets back to New York and there is an article or two about, oh, he did it. But there's no follow-up. Did he win the did he win the prize? Where's this memoir he said he was writing about it? That part of it is is unsatisfying. I mean, I know some of the earlier articles from 1908, 1909, they talk about, oh, he carries a weird book with him, or he carries sheets of paper that have signatures on them. I think he was beginning to do it at that time, but it wasn't the main point of what he was doing. It's not until much later that I think it kind of maybe dawns on him that oh, this is something I could do. I could get interest from people. I could keep walking. I could keep traveling. Because I don't think he wanted like a a normal job, you know, and this kind of was what he could do instead of doing a normal job. He's got this volume that kind of legitimizes the whole thing, that it's for real. I mean, you can't just, I would imagine that, uh, you know, forensically somebody could say, yes, that is the Duke of York signature, the the Prince of Wales or what, what have you, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, you can't fake that very well. 
And he, that book has been around. I mean, that's, that's, that's the hands-on concrete evidence of a life on the road. You know, for many of those that you just mentioned, like the Duke of York, say, or Theodore Roosevelt, it got written about in the newspapers. You know, you can go back 100 years or more, and there's a newspaper article in the London Times saying Joseph McCulloch showed up at, at 10 Downing Street and tried to see if he could get anybody to sign his book. In 1921, he actually was arrested by French authorities because he tried to, he, he just walked straight into the embassy, you know, and he had this book with him, and they thought it was this, you know, suspicious package, and they, they arrested him. Here's why that went wrong. Unbeknownst to Mikulik, his timing was way off. Just days before, the American embassy in Paris had been the target of an attack. Washington, D.C., the evening star, December 4th, 1921. The other day, just after the explosion of the bomb at the American embassy in Paris, Mikulik appeared there in his tramping clothes, a red bandana around his neck, and a big black thing under one arm. The assistant secretary and the girl stenographers looked at the big black thing. It was their idea of what an infernal machine looks like. Mikulik asked to see Ambassador Herrick. Just wait a minute, if you will be so kind, said the chief assistant secretary, trying hard to smile. Then she whispered something to an office boy who made a bolt for the door. In a moment, two French gendarmes appeared and led Mikulik away to the police station. There, the gendarmes, with all the usual precautions, examined the big black thing. After removing the waterproof covering, they discovered the book. Mikulik still hopes to get Ambassador Herrick's autograph. Mr. Mikulik says he encounters few difficulties in his work. I walked up to 10 Downing Street, London the other day, he relates, and knocked at the door. I said I wanted to see Lloyd George, and his secretary told me Lloyd George was in conference. So I left my book until the next day. When I came back, the autographs of most of the cabinet were in my book, and there were ten photographers waiting to snap me on the way out. The truth is that Mr. McCulloch succeeds through a personal talent, the chief element of which is his profound belief in himself, his whole soul devotion to his work. He hopes to reach Washington in time for the armament conference. Then he will consider his work finished. Someday he hopes to sell his book, but only to one who will promise to care for it and to place it eventually in a great public library. He will not at present name his price. It is a very valuable book, is all he will say. Perhaps he means a thousand dollars, or perhaps he means a million. He just thought he could just walk right in and no problem, just get somebody's autograph and walk right back out. (laughs) You just wonder, like, how did he get these people to sign his book? How did he get into these places? But I think he probably started small And then, you know, you get to the next city and you say, well, the mayor of that city signed my book. Are you going to sign my book? And the governor of this state signed my book. Will you sign my book? I I have met Theodore Roosevelt four times. The Duke of York signed my book. And don't you want to sign it too? I mean, he really did use it to his advantage to to get people from like a, a local barber to the president. He didn't really discriminate. And one of the things that's really interesting, too, is that he he went and talked to a lot of different immigrant groups, and he would have them sign his book, and not even just sign it, but, like, write their little story in it. It really is such a goldmine of information for whoever ends up with this book, and I kind of hope it's an institution or someone that's really going to be able to mine it for what it is. He engages in this travel, and rather than do Western Europe or even Eastern Europe and maybe the United States, he takes a very, back then would have been incredibly early, global look at this. I mean, he's in Tasmania. He's in New Zealand. He's in you know, Christchurch, New Zealand. And now he doesn't just go to Christchurch. He goes to a number of places in, in New Zealand. He's meeting the, the Governor General of Australia in 1911. I mean, there's just not much down there at this point. I mean, Australia certainly hadn't just recently been discovered, but nor is it what we think of today. He's traveling up into Japan and, and China and India. He's meeting Admiral Togo. He's meeting you know, the, the governor in, in Hong Kong and, and leaders in Shanghai and the, the future president of China. And then he goes into India where he's meeting the governors there. They would have been the English governors, India being under English control in 1912. He meets, you know, over the course of the next few years, he meets several presidents of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover. I mean, really every president that would have been available to him. He meets two future kings of England, and he meets folks that you might not think. He goes out west into California in the early 1900s and meets leaders from the the silent movie industry. 
very early entertainment. In terms of business, he does meet Andrew Carnegie. He meets Thomas Edison, John Wanamaker, Charles Schwab. He meets the heads of art organizations like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Met Jack Dempsey. And he met a lot of people whose names you never would have heard of. I mean, really, this is a survey of an entire generation. You would never know a lot of these people existed in these places at these times, if not for this book. Presumably, most of them are covered in some form or another in the census records. He went into a lot of immigrant communities, people who may not have uh, appeared with, with the highest level of accuracy. So he was going into the, you know, the Polish-American neighborhood in, in Chicago. I'm just using that as sort of a, an example. But really, everywhere he went, he attempted to find the, those communities that had been transplanted from abroad. The bankers, the business owners, the entertainment folks, the people at the local stock exchange, the, the, the grocery store owner. I mean, everybody is represented. And that's why instead of having three to 400 signatures, which is what you'd see in a typical album, you have tens of thousands, maybe over 100,000. I mean, you just have so many. I think my best guess is around 60,000. But I mean, you could convince me it was more. And I, I don't, and I don't plan on going through and, and manually counting 60,000 signatures. <laughs> so when he met with these people, it was generally not just to sign their name, but they did a variety of things. Some wrote little notes to the Globetrotter or some well-wishing on his journey, some acknowledgement of who he was. Some are really quite long, some are quite short. Some put stamps or seals associated with their position. So he met most of the governors in the states that he traveled through, and they would put the seal of that state. It's really more of a cultural social survey of an era and a travel log. You can follow him as he goes from point A to point B. That's why I think it's, to call it an autograph album is, is, is sort of diminutive. As Rebecca Berry explained to us earlier, this trotting around the globe business, this hyper-pedestrianism, it had its heyday. It was all the rage. And with his book, his glorious book, uh, McCulloch was just a cut above the rest, I think. But you can always capture an audience only to lose it. And eventually, at least one newspaper soured on what he was doing. The Prescott, Arkansas Daily News. September 6th, 1916. Peripatetic crank visited Little Rock yesterday. Little Rock, September 6th. There came to Little Rock yesterday one of that familiar type of peripatetic cranks who is walking all over the world for some reason or other. This particular member of the tribe is Joseph McCulloch, who claims to be a citizen of Pennsylvania, although a native of Croatia. He says that he began his travels 15 years ago and has since visited 26 nations of the globe. He is scheduled to complete his tour of the world in December 1918, when he is to receive a bonus of $10,000. He will write a book descriptive of his travels, which will be translated into six languages, and he expects to receive a large amount of money for this. He carries with him a large book in which he has the signatures of thousands of dignitaries from all parts of the world. One large album contains the autographs of all the crown heads of Europe. Rebecca, would you be able to say anything about the heyday of public interest in Mikulik and then how that waned and he kind of became a has-been? Yeah, there's one really great article, and this was really even before he was probably at the peak of his fame. There's one reporter who kind of lamented they were kind of sick of him coming around and asking to be written, you know, asking to be written up yet again, which I kind of laughed when I saw that because I thought I bet he was a little bit of a, a pain sometimes. You know, he'd show up and sometimes show up in the same cities, show up in 1909 and then show up in that same city in 1913 and then maybe again in 1960, like show up in the same cities and go back to those same reporters and say, okay, here I'm back. And, you know, don't you want to write about me again? And and I think at some point they were like, no, we don't want to write about you again. <laughs> and then, you know, he, he started at the end talking about how he just wanted to retire to a farm. Watauga Democrat, Boone, North Carolina, October 4th, 1923. Traveler fails to find biggest thing in life. Joseph F. McCulloch has wandered over 200,000 miles seeking the biggest thing in life. I have visited kings and queens, presidents, governors, and notables in all lands. 
I have seen every country and every city, have traveled when and where I pleased, but I have missed the biggest thing in life, he says sadly. The biggest thing? Companionship. Real companionship. I meet scores of people every day, but they aren't interested in me, and I can't get the opportunity to become interested in them. They want to know of my travels, and I've got to tell it all over again. When the day is done, I haven't anyone I can sit down and talk with as one friend talks with another. And that is the biggest thing in life. Everyone knows Mikulik. President Harding once met him. So has Woodrow Wilson, the Prince of Wales, J.P. Morgan, the late Teddy Roosevelt, and hundreds of others of equal note. Twenty-one years ago, he's forty-five now, Joe left his home in Croatia, a province of Hungary. He's been walking ever since through a score of nations and every state in the United States. Now he wants a little farm somewhere in his adopted country. He sees a wheat field, or maybe rows of corn and tomatoes, and plows and horses and chickens and neighbors. Joe's autograph book weighs 57 pounds now. Names that would amaze you are written in it. Just about every world character except John D. Rockefeller and the King of England. He uses a little wagon to carry the book. It is so heavy. For many years, however, he carried it, but it wasn't that big then. He increases it as it fills. Joe wants to see his book finally placed in a museum or library. He hopes someone will buy it for that purpose. Price, he won't say, but he does add that what it brings will buy the farm and have plenty left over to tide him through the remainder of this life with friends. Is there anything in the book that would shed any light on why an abrupt end to it all? I think that he got tired. I don't know for sure. And there's always the hope that he has family in Croatia that could provide a clear end date for him. What you do get with some of the correspondence that comes, because there's you know, 20 or so letters back and forth between him and the, the, the person to whom he sold this book was a sense that, that he was, you know, feeling his age, either that or really wanting to settle and have a family. And also, there's only so long you can do this without running out of money. You know, I, I, he, he's, I don't think anybody could do what he did uh, back then today. But from a purely financial perspective, it would be incredibly expensive. I mean, he must have gotten rides on steamers he must have you know taken the slow train west you know he certainly was not dining in the luxury car he was not a wealthy man this seems to have been his life passion one of the greatest intrigues for me in this whole story is the fact that a person suddenly appears on the world stage as it were and then vanishes from that stage and i'm just wondering do you think there are people who are going to be on his tail yet, you know, sleuthing, doing the detective work to try to find out the, 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 the greater life story. So there's two responses to that are, I hope so. I hope that there are people who come and seek to fill in the blanks of his life. And I don't know that there's a whole lot on the front end, but there certainly is on the tail end. He does just simply disappear. But also, I think he gave us a lot of his life. There's a second book, which is the same dimensions, although it's not as thick. And in that book, he wrote a handful of things that he wanted to be remembered by and, and talked about some of his childhood and how he got started. And I, I know he intended to write an autobiography. Clearly, he didn't. There's an element of tragedy to his story in that I think he had broader hopes for who might see this and what they might learn from his journey. And to date, that hasn't happened. There's also a question mark for me in terms of where that book has been hiding for close to a century, it seems. Uh, and did it was it tucked away in an attic? I mean, that's the you know, classic image of where these things land. I don't know that it was in an attic per se, but it was with the same family since McCulloch sold it to uh, Samuel Robinson, who's a Philadelphia. He, he started basically what turned into Acme Markets. Um, so he's a wealthy man, uh, immigrant, and he had struck up a friendship with him and was writing him letters and sold him the book in 1924. There's some question there, too, because then the book is still getting getting newspaper, you know, interest years later. And it's like, well, it's a question of how, how he's still carting this book around if Samuel Robinson owns it. But aside from that, um, you know, the, the documentation says that Robinson bought the book in 1924. There's a receipt. 
And the family that that ended up showing up at Nate's office and, and trying to sell it to him, it was Robinson's great nephew. So it stayed in that family for the last 100 years. You know, people did miss it. The only mention I could find in a recent book was maybe a book published in about 2018. It was a one paragraph that mentioned McCulloch and mentioned him in the context of being a champion walker. The author said, oh, by the way, this man also collected a lot of autographs in a book that's, you know, lost to history. I bought that book when I was researching this article and, you know, I saw the paragraph and it's like, the book has been lost to history. And I thought, not anymore, it hasn't, you know, and that's really cool. Uh, Rebecca, you and Nate have both devoted a lot of attention to rare books. Uh, Countless rare books have passed through your hands and through your minds. And today we've gotten a pretty good sense for this unique item of McCulloch's. Anybody who sees it comes away saying it's one of a kind. And, uh, you know, right here, I want to interject that anybody can go online and see Joseph McCulloch in a short, silent movie where he's showing off the book. He's opening up a few pages. I found the digitized copy online. I better give where to find it. Filmpreservation.org. You want to look for the newsreel from 1922 called Pathé News Number 15. Uh, but back back to you, Rebecca. I, I'm I'm still asking myself about exactly how rare it is to to find something like this. I, I I should say which which boxes does it check for you? This book is probably really hard in terms of saleability. You know, you can put a bunch of different famous people in an album, and and what some dealers will want to do with it is slice it apart and sell them as individual autographs because that might make them more money. But this book is so much more than that. The parts of it that are, are more valuable are the parts where he is writing about his experience meeting people, and, and not even meeting people like Roosevelt's, like meeting just kind of regular people along the way. And, and it, like photographs he has and little stories he shared. I mean, that kind of thing is probably what drives the interest in this book. But, I mean, rarity, there's nothing like this. It seems to me that the whole project is more than just accumulating souvenirs. Are you personally inclined to do that kind of a thing in any fashion? I think I must be as a writer because I do think about that kind of thing. What, you know, what will my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will they be able to have any piece of me left? And I'm pretty sure that as a writer that drives me. Uh, having a book with my name on it that can be on a shelf in somebody's house 100 years from now Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Because otherwise, I mean, of course you can have a headstone. Of course you can have your name in a newspaper article. But having a physical thing that can remind your descendants of who you were is pretty extraordinary. Well, finally, Nate, I just wonder, with some of these things left behind, these relics of the past, some of them are just sort of accidental compared to something like this, which is full of intention. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about sort of that human impulse to to leave a mark, to, to witness where one has been and whom one has met and what a life entailed. There's something so deeply personal about the intentionality of this kind of a document. Yeah. To be honest, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it, you know, using those terms exactly. But I, I think you've hit on something important which is that a lot of the pieces, you know, will carry a letter of George Washington. He didn't intend for that to be left to be collected down the road or, or as any kind of survey beyond informing on the events of the war. I think what Joseph did in this work was he intended to set out to create a piece of history. Now, I think that what he did goes beyond even his own expectations. I mean, I would argue this is the most complete autographic census in America ever completed. You know, that's not currently in the National Archives. I can't imagine a a larger one existing. Of course, there could be, but that's hard for me to imagine. And his genius of going to, you know, business owners, politicians from from the beginning, from the top of the, the influential spectrum to the bottom, but also going into, I mean, remember, this is a really important time in the history of immigration, going into these immigrant communities and getting the local Japanese paper in San Francisco, the people working there to, to I mean, to, to do this, I had, I had, we had to hire translators in like 12 different languages and we still didn't get all the languages. 
But yes, there's clear intentionality here. And maybe it was simply money. I mean, he, I know he wanted to sell this. He intended to sell it, I think, from the get-go. You know, I don't think he set out as a budding historian. He certainly had no training in history. Well, a, a story like this is so difficult to tie a bow on because there's no real... It doesn't really come to an end. And maybe there's something poetic in that, the idea that to take a journey and to canvas the world and survey so many of its inhabitants and to get their signatures and to have them put their marks and their stamps and their seals and whatever tokens they have of we were here. It's kind of, it's kind of like Dr. Seuss, you know, we are here, we are here. He certainly gave us a very clear image of what the country looked like at the time without giving us too much information about who he was. So, you know, the part of me hopes I can tie a, a, a nice little bow on this and say, okay, well, he went, you know, after his last journey, he went back to Croatia and, and died in such such a year and such a, such such a town, reconnected with his cousins and all that. I think that would be anecdotally interesting. Whether it adds much to the story of the book is, is not clear to me. So my hope is that there will surface a family member who can fill in the blanks of some of the details of his life. But I'm confident that at the end of that, the greatest gift he will have left us is, is this one book. So many blanks left to fill in. In our telling of the story thus far, assisted by Nathan Rabb and Rebecca Berry, the biggest blank to address is the question that McCulloch himself made conspicuous by his absence. I mean, where did he go? How did he come to the end of his road? A person can't literally vanish into thin air. We'll say that somebody disappears from history. That's the stock phrase. But today I'm going to give you a different ending to the idea that he just vanished. After all that traipsing, making a fairly big name for himself internationally, telling the world that he wanted the biggest thing in life, companionship, he wanted a wife, he wanted a farm, he wanted to settle down... Uh, by the way, what he did get was at least a couple of marriages. Yes, we've documented two of them, very brief. He got no farm, not from anything we know. More of the open road, the open road. How much open road? You know, a moment ago you were hearing me ask Nate Rabb why McCulloch brought an abrupt end to it all. Well, it turns out that was an ill-informed question on my part. Joseph McCulloch actually never stopped walking, never stopped collecting autographs, never quit aiming for publicity, never got a new life other than the one he chose when he was a young man. After a short break, I'm going to fill you in about what I've learned. Meanwhile, our sincere thanks to Rebecca Rigo Berry and Nathan Rabb for bringing us almost to the conclusion of this tale. Nathan Rabb is a rare book dealer in the Philadelphia area, and Rebecca Rigo Berry is author of Rare Books Uncovered, True Stories of Fantastic Finds in Unlikely Places. Before we wrap up this episode of Constant Wonder, our hero, Joseph McCulloch, deserves more than to be pigeonholed as just another endurance champion. So let's try to fill in a few more blanks yet. Something tells me the real drama of this story can only be his inner life journey. Where was his mind walking? Was he looking for something? And did he ever find it? There's a great song about all of this, you know, with lyrics that express the importance of pursuing a destination with unrelenting desire. Are those words written by U2's Bono a good fit for someone like Joseph McCulloch? Bono described his song as restless. He wrote it, so he gets to say that, but I too hear yearning in it, an unrelenting quest for meaning or transcendence, a, a long, long journey. about the companionship thing? Was Joseph McCulloch being honest about his desire for what he called the biggest thing in life? Chicago 1917, Mary Medrick becomes his second wife, second as far as we know, but he still hasn't found what he's looking for. It's easy to try on a few labels for size. He was an entrepreneur, a sideshow freak, a fantasizer, a grifter, a user. 
ne'er-do-well, a tramp, an adventurer, a survivor, tourist, nonconformist, artist, maybe a perplexed genius. I imagine him to have been fearless. He couldn't have been timid. And apart from sheer physical exhaustion, which was certainly his daily lot, he also suffered episodes of hunger and sickness. And he would eagerly tell about these adventures. Ambushed by robbers in Argentina, then ambushed again in Brazil, bitten by snakes and disease-ridden mosquitoes, getting lost in a rainforest where he survived day after day on wild fruits. All of these hardships because his only business was going places. Now, genealogical research using vital records and such, that's a a hobby of mine. So here's a small sampling of what I've been able to suss out. McCulloch filled out official forms to become a naturalized U.S. citizen, to register for the draft, to get married, and on these forms he refers to himself variously as a farmer or a painter, actually on his first marriage license. Remember the Romanian poet and walking champion Anastiopu? Well, he gives his line of work there bluntly as pedestrian. He was very consistent from document to document. He gave the same birth, date, and place, same parentage. He used his own name. On a ship's manifest and on various passport applications, he forthrightly gives the purpose of his travel, walking tour, traveling and writing a book, Sometimes the entries are more vague. Recreation, pleasure. Joseph McCulloch may be the most unsettled person I've ever learned about. And so, no, he never settled down. Here's how things ended. Genoa, Italy, May 8th, 1933, 10.30 a.m. Cause of death, pulmonary tuberculosis. On that document are the names of his nearest relations, a brother Evan and a sister Dorothy, both still residing in Croatia in the very town of his birth. Disposition of the effects, none other than autograph book. Right to the end, Joseph Mikulik was still at it, or maybe I should say still looking for it. This episode produced by Eric Schultzka with assistance from Mamie Teeples. Our newsreader was Daniel Summerstay. Sound designed by Addie Mangum and Josh Cloward of the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for joining with us for Constant Wonder, a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.